You are listening to our Southside Baptist Church podcast. For more audio content, please refer to our website. This is baptistchurch.com. Basically, it was this. What is the spiritual significance of what we're going through right now? What is the spiritual significance? I, I wrote this down. What does the believer take away from this pandemic? Uh, How are we as followers of Jesus Christ to interpret this? And I I think that's a great question because we, we serve a sovereign God. Jesus said, and I've alluded to that before, that he holds us in the palm of his hand and no man can pluck us out. I've always thought of it this way, that anything that comes into my life has first come through the hand of God And my question will always be in those times, God, what are you doing in my life? What are you teaching me? And so when when Betty asked that question, what is the spiritual spiritual significance? What is is God trying to teach us through all of this? My wife, Sheila, will tell you that immediately when I hung up the phone, it was like I was plugged into a hot wire. I mean, I, I I grabbed a legal pad And I look like a madman writing. Now, Sheila knows me. When I feel God is giving me a message, uh, I I just become consumed with it. Uh, She fixed lunch. I couldn't stop. Uh, She actually had a nice meal sitting there. I couldn't do anything. And I filled out three legal pages front and back with what I believe God was saying, not only to me, but maybe to you as well. What is the spiritual significance? And God drew me back to the Old Testament, and more particularly to Exodus chapter 12. So I want to read from Exodus chapter 12, beginning at verse 1, because this is called the atonement. And I'm going to explain that in a moment, but basically that word atonement means to cover over. Now, real quickly, let me give you a little bit of background before I read this. Everyone knows that Abraham was the Uh, the covenant father of the nation of Israel. Uh, In the Old Testament, Abraham eventually will have a son named Isaac. Isaac will have two sons named Jacob and Esau. And then Jacob will have 12 sons, and from Reuben all the way down to Benjamin. Now, Jacob had one son named Joseph, and most of you that are familiar with the Bible know that at some point, Jacob actually made a coat of many colors basically identifying Joseph as the firstborn, the one who would receive the two-thirds of the inherited estate. The other brothers get angry, and eventually they sell Joseph to Ishmaelite traders, slave traders, and Joseph is sold down in slavery, in slavery to the nation down down in Egypt. Now, eventually, God uses Joseph to bring his family, Jacob, his brothers, and all of them to Egypt. And over time, over over 400 years, the Bible said that the Jewish people grew and they became very powerful. And before long, Pharaoh, who was not familiar with Joseph, began to become worried that this great nation, this Jewish nation, might militarily be a threat. And so he set out to solved the problem, and how he did it was this. He demanded, he commanded, he 
pressed into Egyptian law that all Hebrew families would take their children when they were born, their boys, and throw them into the Nile River. Now the Bible says there was a man by the name of Amram and his wife Jochebed. And Amram and Jochebed, they had, according to the writer of Hebrews, an unusually beautiful little boy. And uh, we know him as Moses. And I just picture this scene because they are a family under great duress and they are to throw him into the Nile and to not do so could not only mean their death but the death of his siblings, uh, Aaron and Miriam. And so Amram and Jochebed filled, uh, they made this papyrus reed basket. And I can just picture that mom late at night weaving that basket, putting bitumen, tar, pitch, and sealing it just like Noah did the ark. And then eventually she laid little Moses in that basket. She told Miriam, she said, Miriam, I want you to stay close and I want you to watch it. And then she pushed that basket with that baby out into the Nile. Can you imagine as a parent. You know, a lot of times we get discouraged. We think, you know, I have people all the time that'll say to me, you know, this is not a very good time to be bringing children in the world. This is the best time to be bringing children into the world. God's still sovereign, just like he was over Amram and Jochebed's decision to push Moses out into the Nile. Sometimes that's what it feels like as a parent. You're pushing your children almost out into a uh, alligator-infested, hippo-infested, raging river. And they did that. Eventually, most of you know the story, a member of Pharaoh's family saw Moses, drew him up out of the water. That's where the name Moses comes from. Eventually, Miriam goes and intercedes, and, and the mother of Moses allowed to nurse him. And then eventually, Moses grows up. He's groomed, he's educated, and the best education of his day in the Egyptian culture. One day, he's a 40-year-old man. Call of God is on his life. As he's walking through that slave-infested nation, people in bondage, making bricks, he sees an Egyptian taskmaster beating a, a Jew, a Hebrew. And the Bible said that Moses was filled with rage. He took the man and he killed him. And then he hid him in a shallow grave. Eventually, Pharaoh would find out about this crime, threaten Moses, and Moses would run, and he would run all the way to the wilderness of Midian, where the next 40 years he would live as a shepherd. Until one day, he saw a mountain. And he climbed up that mountain, and he ran into a sovereign, holy Jehovah, Yahweh, Elohim, creator, God of gods, the I Am. And Moses looked at God, and almost with anger, he said, have you heard the cry of your people? And God said, Moses, I've heard the cry of my people and I've seen their bondage and I'm sending you. And so eventually Moses goes back to Egypt 
Aaron as his voice piece. And he stands before Pharaoh and he basically says to Pharaoh, let my people go. That's the words of God. Pharaoh, the Bible said that Pharaoh hardened his heart and eventually God would harden the heart of Pharaoh and Pharaoh would not relent. So most of you know that there was a systematic process by which God began to bring judgment on Egypt. Um, uh, water to blood, the frogs, the gnats, the flies, the livestock killed, boils on their skin, hell that turned to fire, locusts, black darkness, and then finally the last one, the death of the firstborn. And when we pick up at Exodus chapter 12, beginning at verse 1, and you may say, you know, I've been watching you now. This is my third Sunday to watch you. You sure are very serious today. You're exactly right. Because I believe that God had me up night after night. I've been up this morning since 4 o'clock because God has an answer to Betty's question. What is the spiritual significance? How does the follower of Christ interpret this pandemic? What does this mean? In Exodus chapter 12 verse 1, the Bible said, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, this month is to be to you the first month, the first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbor, having taken into account the number of people that are there. You are to determine the amount of the lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. If you've got a big eater, you better have a big lamb or more than one lamb. The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect, and you may take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month, and when all the people of the community of Israel, must, they must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood, put it on the sides and the tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. That same night, they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Do not eat the meat raw or cooked in water, but roast it over fire, head, legs, and inner parts. Do not leave any of it till morning. If some is left till morning, you must burn it. This is how you are to eat it. With your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand, eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. Wow. Now what does that mean? That means that at some point Moses went out and he told the Jewish people, he told the nation, the Hebrew nation... He said, now God is getting ready to send this one last plague and it's going to be like no plague that we've ever seen before. And God has told you and I, and I, I believe at that moment every Hebrew family was gathered, especially men, especially households where men were stepping forward, dads, husbands, 
grandfathers, the old patriarchs. They were standing up and there came that moment that Moses said, God wants us to go out into our flock, take the best lamb, a lamb without blemish. And we're going to take that lamb and we're to bring it into our home and treat it like a pet and keep it in our home for 14 days, two weeks, investing in it and spending time with it so that when we give it up, we'll understand the sacrifice of what it will cost. So I just kind of picture dads going out, maybe the children gathered around them, wife near them, and he began to examine the flock. And then finally he located that one lamb, that lamb that had been designated to die for the family, for the household. He picked that lamb up, he put it across his shoulders. His children may have wept and cried. They knew the significance of what this would mean. That lamb would spend time with that family. And then on the 14th day, he would look at his wife and his children and he would say, it's time. He would take that lamb, he would hold that head up, he would slit the neck of that lamb, and the blood of that lamb would spill over into a basin. And then he reached and took that old common desert plant, hyssop, and he dipped it down in that blood and wife and children were all gathered around him. And he took that and he put it around the door frame of that home. You can just see that lamb's blood as it comes down that man's hand, as it spills across the ground, as he puts it over the door frame, around the door of that home. Then he looks at his children and his wife and he said, it's time to go in. You know, a door is sacred, isn't it? You know, we often will step over a threshold of a door. You know why? Because most cultures in the world believe that a door, a doorway is sacred. When I lived in Zimbabwe and I would go to a home before I ever entered that home, before I ever got close to it, I would cry out, go, 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 go. That means knock, knock, knock. And I would have to be invited. They would say, Pindai, Pindai. Enter, come into this home. The door of a home is sacred. You know what God told Cain when he said, Cain, he said, you better get control of your anger. Cain, you, Cain, you better get control of this stronghold in your life because sin is crouching where? It's crouching at your door. And you better learn to master it or it will master you. A door is sacred. Let me ask you something. What are you allowing in your home right now? What are you allowed to come through your door right now? What are you allowing to come through the door of your heart? Well, in the plague, no more than 10 could be in a home. Isn't that strange? There could be no more than 10 people in that home, and they were confined to that home. They couldn't come out of that home. That home was covered by the blood of the Lamb. They were safe, but they were only safe as they stayed in that home, and they had to stay into that home, listen, until the plague passed, till the death angel had moved through. Outside the protection, the blood-covered home, there was judgment. Now you may think, you may be listening, and you know this whole idea of blood atonement, blood sacrifice, may be new to you. 
Years ago, Billy Graham. Billy Graham was an anthropology major. He was going to speak at a major university. The anthropology department had invited him to come. He knew that he would face critics, skeptics. And at a certain point, they begin to fire their questions at Billy Graham, firing them at Billy Graham. And Billy Graham looked and he said, I'll ask you one question first. Name one civilization that doesn't practice blood atonement. I would have to believe as mere as uh, C.S. Lewis kind of alludes to that we are programmed for blood atonement. Why? Maybe to prepare us for Jesus Christ. So let's go back to the spiritual significance. What is the spiritual significance of this pandemic? What does it mean to the church and the followers of Jesus Christ? Number one, there's two questions. First of all, is this the judgment of God? Now let me say that again. Is this the judgment of God? Now let me, everybody listen closely. I don't know. I don't know. Any preacher that would tell you that he knows may be uh, not telling you the truth. May not be the judgment of God. We don't know that. Are we living in the last days? We don't know that either. I don't know. Number two, and here's the critical question. Do we deserve judgment? You see, is this the judgment of God? Well, I'm, I'm sure there are a lot of good godly people that are suffering. They're losing their jobs. Things are going wrong in their life. They're, they're having to tighten their finances. There are godly good people that, that, that have this virus right now. They're struggling. So I'm not ready to say that this is the judgment of God, but I would ask this question, and I ask this question of you and I. Do we deserve the judgment of God? You know, I had a friend of mine call me. Uh, well, he texts me, actually. And he, he was, he, in this text, he's a strong Christian. He was texting them to me the latest conspiracy theory, uh, this political conspiracy theory, all this stuff floating around. And then at the bottom of the text, he said, what are you doing? I said, I tell you what I'm doing, texting back. I said, I'm in, my, I'm in this sanctuary right now on my knees confessing my sin and asking God to forgive me. Is that where you are today? Well, let me, let me, let me ask you, do we deserve judgment? I do. Let me give you some reasons. Number one... Do you know the first command God gave us outside of protecting us from the knowledge of good and evil? God told Adam and Eve, he said, be fruitful and multiply. Propagation of the human race. And yet we live in a nation today, since Roe v. Wade, we have, uh, we have killed over 60 million unborn children. You know the Bible said, you know when Cain killed his brother Abel? Do you know when God confronted Cain? You know what he said? He said, he said, Cain, your brother's blood is crying out from the ground. Do you know that blood is so sacred? The Bible says life is in the blood. The Bible says there is no remission. There's no remission. There's no forgiveness without sin. Blood is all through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. Why? Because it is preparing us for the blood of the Lamb, Jesus Christ, and the blood that was shed on Calvary. But we've killed over 60 million unborn our present social security system, 
our Medicare, our problems in every area right now are the direct result of Roe v. Wade. We have killed our workforce. And now we don't know what to do. 60 million. You know, Dr. Stan May, PhD, brilliant man, made this statement. He said, I, I believe this government is serious about this virus when they close down abortion clinics. That's a good point. With all the medical advances, the ability to peer within the womb, to see children, with images that are almost as if we are holding them in our hands. They laugh, they cry, they grimace, they move away from pain. That may be what may reverse Roe v. Wade is the whole issue of pain. As we peer into the womb, we've discovered that the unborn are fascinating and there are a million miracles at once. But we've gone farther. We don't just kill them in the womb. It wasn't a matter of the first trimester. It wasn't a matter of the second trimester. It wasn't a matter of the third trimester. We couldn't stop. So we said this. Colorado Democrats said this. When they defeated the Born Alive Act, requiring care for the infant who is born due to a botched abortion, they said it was the mother's right, the medical community's right, to set that shelf, that baby, and let that baby and now a mother can take the life of her baby not only in the womb, but outside the womb. Republican state representative made this statement. He said, we must look at ourselves and decide what kind of society we are. This is not an abortion bill. He said, this is a murder bill. And they have a committee in Colorado, this called the Kill Committee. The Democrats defeated the second bill, six to three, basically killing Born Alive Act. And America was moved toward a level of barbarism that equals that of the Nazis. It's a pretty good reason for judgment. Then there's pornography. Wow. Cyber sex today is $1 billion. They estimate it soon will be a 5 to $7 billion industry. Alabama, just recently, the 16th state to recognize that pornography has become a health crisis. Porn is leaked to violent behavior, hypersexualization of children, adolescents, adults, women become objects, prostitution increases, sex trafficking goes up, and research indicates that it is a biologically addictive behavior. And it causes young men not to want to marry. Time magazine, I think in 2016, devoted a cover to this. 64% of children ages 13 to 24 seek pornography weekly. Teen girls seek it quicker than a 25-year-old woman. Uh, 2015, 22 studies in seven states, the consumption of pornography significantly higher increases in verbal 
and physical aggression and abuse. You think we deserve judgment? Radio station here in Jackson used to call it 99 Jam. And if you're watching, you can apologize to me if you want. There was a time when I went to the management because I heard a rap song that had a man having sex with both the mother and the daughter at the same time. Yeah, it's probably time to move the kids away from the TV. You may say, well, pastor, I wish you'd have told me this a long time ago. Well, remember that when you're on Netflix. You see, the reality is porn sites in this country and around the world have more traffic than Twitter, Netflix, and Amazon combined. 35% of all internet downloads are pornography. 624,000 plus child porn traders right now. Porn is a global problem. $97 billion, NBC said that the United States, $12 billion. We're confused sexually. We don't have war heroes reading stories. We have drag queens. Ed Meese, under the direction of President Ronald Reagan, warned this nation back in the 80s. He was the Attorney General when he did a pornography study he said, if you don't stop this now, it will be an epidemic and it will redefine society as we know it. And then what I would call number three, the precursor, is the entertainment industry. Isn't it strange that Hollywood is shut down? Wow. Theaters are closed. You can't go see a good movie. Maybe because there's not many in the eyes of God that are good. Who would have believed it? Profanity in, in movies today is on the rise since the 1980s. And, it, and one writer said it shows no signs of letting up. The F-bomb, GD this, GD that. I saw where one movie had 600 times the F-bomb, averaging less than two minutes every two minutes in the movie. I'm told I just need to accept it. It's just the way we are. No, it's not the way we used to be. Man used that kind of language in a mixed gathering. When I was a boy, you know who dealt with it? My dad. Not many men today, though. When I drive into the church here in the city of Jackson, I have to stomach a gambling institution right now that has about half dozen half-clad men, half-clad meaning they're half-naked, inviting women to come and gamble and to see these men. It was a movie a few years ago I heard Christian women going to see. What was it, Mike? You see, the problem is we've gotten so used to the dark we don't even know anymore. Gambling, some have said online gambling will be the next hidden epidemic. Experts on pathological gambling have shown that the prevalence, uh, prevalence of this disorder is linked closely to the accessibility and the acceptability ability of gambling in our society. As, in other words, as more try gambling, more become addicted to gambling. PBS. 
In Iowa, the legalization of casinos in the state of Iowa tripled the problem of addiction. Now you can gamble online. You can gamble on your phone. In fact, this thing right here, as my daughter told me one time, my phone is there. My daughter said, Dad, that's a small computer and you can do anything on that you can do on a computer. She was right. I can look at hardcore porn and I can gamble away my life. Sat in a preacher's office one day when a phone call came. He said, hang on a minute. You mind if I take this? I said, no, go ahead. It was his son-in-law. His son-in-law said, uh, I hate to tell you this, but I've, I, I've lost everything. I'm over $30,000 in debt. I've lost the home. I've lost everything, and I need you to help me. Can you loan me $30,000? And if you can't, then I'm about to lose everything, including your daughter. My friend looked and said, I'm sorry, I can't do that. And he was right. At home ended up marriage broken, families severed and scattered. Oh, gambling, oh, that's not such a big deal. It's an addiction. So, you know, when we think about this, and uh, the Supreme Court, I, I heard the herd, I keep up with NFL, and they were talking to Mark Cuban, and, and the host of the herd was saying, you know, what we need is to go ahead and see sports betting uh, made available. I think this will help the industry. So the Supreme Court, in a 7-2 decision, ruled that the national ban on sports betting was unconstitutional. So guess what God did? He just shut down sports. He shut down professional baseball, professional basketball, professional football, so soccer, hockey. He just shut down the Olympics. He shut the entire sports industry down. He shut the gambling casinos down. And give them enough time He'll deal a blow that this world will never believe possible. He may shut our ability to internet down. Jesus said this. I've got four children, 16 grandchildren. I'm not worried about the adults that are listening to me. It doesn't matter to me if you're offended or bothered at all. You've heard a message I believe from God, not from me. And it's not for me, it's for my 16 grandchildren that have their whole life in front of them. Jesus said this, he said, if you cause one of these little ones, while he was holding a child, you remember the disciples looked and said, Lord, uh, you know, first of all, he tried to stop the moms. Don't, he don't have time, he's busy, he's tired. And Jesus looked at his disciples, he was more angry of the Greek in the language here, he's more angry than the cleansing of the temple. He said, suffer not the, to hinder, don't hinder the children from coming to me, for such is the kingdom of heaven. And then he said this, if you cause one of these little ones to stumble, you would be better off to go to our reservoir, get in a, get in a boat, go out in the middle of the reservoir, tie a stone around your neck and throw yourself into the, into the reservoir. Is this God's judgment? I don't know. Do we deserve it? Oh, yeah. Oh, conservative, fundamentalist Christian, what do you look so pious for? The reality is, go back and check. 
Roe v. Wade and listen to some of the most conservative fundamentalist voices and their opinions on Roe v. Wade. And you'll find out why we are where we are. To the left-wing liberal, oh, don't be so biased. Daniel chapter 9, Daniel, the most righteous man, believed maybe in all of the scripture pretty much. When he prays and cries out, he cries out constantly saying, God, we, we, we. In the age of social media, you're more apt, my own church members, you're more apt to share your cookie recipe than you are this message. And you know it. I'm not, an, I'm a nobody. Um, I'm nothing. I don't, I don't have no big platform. But I have no doubt in my mind that God sent me today to say these words to you and I. And until Jesus Christ invades your heart and my heart, until he brings us to the point of repentance, I had a preacher friend of mine who was talking about a particular individual, wanting me to rejoice, and I finally said, that's fine, but where is repentance? You see, to be saved, you have to be, re you have to be repentant. Repentance is a, a 180 turn. It's a change of mind. All of a sudden, you're going in one direction, living life for the carnal, fleshly nature, driven by what is good for you and nobody else. You don't care about anybody else when all of a sudden God stops you dead in your tracks and you come face to face as Paul did on the Damascus road with his Holy Spirit and Jesus Christ says you better turn around and follow me. That's our only hope. And until Christ monopolizes your life and becomes the Lord, nothing changes. Our society is slipping towards Sodom because the church is about as sick as the society that we are in. Six months ago, now I want you to think about this. Six months ago, if you had told somebody, if I could take you and put you back six months ago, and you look at somebody and say, you know what? You're sitting there with a friend, some work associates, sitting there with your family, at a family reunion. Maybe it's Thanksgiving. Maybe you're at Thanksgiving and you say to the family, gathered all there, extended family, you're about to, about to pray, and all of a sudden you looked at them and said, you know, six months from now, within six months of now, you won't be able to go to the movies. In fact, Hollywood will be shut down. In fact, the movie stars, isn't that funny to watch sometimes some of these people? They'll be locked away frightened. You look at that family gathered around that Thanksgiving meal and you say, you know what, let me go farther. You won't be able to go to a sporting event. Not, uh, not Little League, not junior high, not high school, not college, not pro. You won't be, hey listen, NBA, they'll call off the season. Baseball, no more. There'll be no stadiums. There'll be no school auditoriums with basketball. There'll be nothing. The sporting industry will be shut down. Number three, 
you look at him and say, you won't be able to go to work. You won't even be able to go to work. You'll be locked away like a prisoner in your home. And as I said a moment ago, the Olympics, you look at them and say, oh, there'll be no Olympics, no 2020 Olympics. That's shut down too. Hey, guess what? Your children, halfway into the semester, school will disclose. It will be over. I told my wife, when society loses its fear of God, it is very, very, in a very, very dangerous position. And Jesus Christ is the only answer. Let me say that unapologetically to the Muslims who may be watching, to the Hindu, to the Buddhist, to the New Age, to everybody. Let me remind you that Jesus Christ, as we say in the Shonen language of Z, uh, in Zimbabwe, Zira Umwechete, Jesus is the only way. Let me ask you something. Are we under the judgment of God? Are we living in the last days? I don't know that. Do we deserve it? I do. Let me tell you something about God. When we don't listen to God, He's like a parent. When you're raising your children, you correct them with a verbal warning. When they don't listen, you, you threaten um, putting them in their room. When they rebel against everything, finally you discipline them and you do it because you love them. Every time you step into discipline, if they don't listen, the discipline becomes more and more and more and more. Let me ask you something. How much worse can it get? I've stood in this pulpit. I've, I've preached sometimes the empty chairs saying to this city, the capital city of Mississippi, that this community, South Jackson, a nobody, a nothing, but warning them over and over and over and over again that if we don't repent as a nation, I think it was Ruth Bell said God would have to apologize to Sodom. Is this serious? Oh, yes, it is. When I was 16 years old, I'll end with this and pray. When I was 16 years old, my uncle, his name was Tom. He was 39 years old. He was in the hospital. He had viral pneumonia. His wife was sick. His child was sick. My dad asked me, he had to go to work that day. My dad asked me this question. He said, son, would you go sit with Tom? He's really sick. When I walked in, there's my 39-year-old uncle. I loved him like second only to my dad. His fingers were starting to turn blue. My 16-year-old teenage mind, I knew that he was dying. And I'll never forget sitting there. My grandmother, his mom and dad came in. And finally that doctor came in. He said, we've got to get him. Back then they called it an iron lung, a ventilator. We didn't have an ambulance service, so they had to put him in the Strickland King in Yazoo City. He had to put him in a hearse. So he loaded him up in the back of that. The doctor said, I want you to understand, this is a very dangerous pneumonia, this viral pneumonia. And whoever gets in that ambulance will probably get it. My grandmother to this day, I know in heaven, she probably still regrets it. She said, well, my health is not good. So my grandparents, his parents chose not to do that. I looked at the doctor because I knew my uncle was dying. I'll go. And I climbed up in the back of that Strickland King hearse. And my uncle looked at me with fear in his eyes. The only thing he said in that ambulance was he said, Jeff, he patted my leg. He said, you're a good boy. 
When I looked at my uncle, that ambulance, that hearse was filled with the presence and the power of God's Holy Spirit. And God tapped a 16-year-old boy on his shoulder and said, Son, it is not meant that any man should die with this kind of fear. And in that moment, God called me to preach. Did I get sick? Oh, yes, I did. I ended up in the hospital a week. In many ways, I think my parents thought I would die. But God used that to call me and to direct me. And God can use this to direct some of you to come to Christ and to repent of your sin and give your life to Christ. And from this moment on, begin to serve Him wholeheartedly with everything in you. Others of you, have you're Christians, but you know you're not where you need to be. Let this be a divine opportunity to change your life. Would you do that? Dad, would you do that? Mom, let me pray. Our Heavenly Father, I preached with everything in me. And Lord, I believe today that you can take this message and Lord, you can use it in the life of people, not only that are listening, but those who will yet share and hear it later on. I pray, dear Lord, for every man, woman, boy and girl, I pray that they've given their heart and their life to you. I know that some children have had to leave the room. I know that mom have corralled them out. But my only prayer is that mom will corral them out for the whole time she's raising them, corralling them away from sin. My son, our worship leader, he's a chaplain at Baptist Hospital. And yesterday when I was around him, he said, Dad, get away from me. Dad, I, I, I've been around it in the hospital. You need to stay away from me. May we have that kind of spirit when it comes to sin. Lord, let it begin with me. Lord, forgive me. Forgive me, dear Lord, for not walking as close as I should and could. God, forgive me. Cleanse me. Lord, let me be a tool in your hand. And Lord, we pray for you to do something that only you can do. In the name of Jesus, amen.